Thanks for downloading or purchasing this sermon from Christchurch Forward. To find out more, visit forwardchurch.co.uk or join us on Sundays. The desert and the parched land will be glad. The wilderness will rejoice and blossom like the crocus. It will burst into bloom. It will rejoice greatly and shout for joy. The glory of Lebanon will be given to it, the splendor of Carmel and Sharon. They will see the glory of the Lord, the splendor of our God. Strengthen the feeble hands, steady the knees that give way. Say to those with fearful hearts, be strong, do not fear. Your God will come. He will come with vengeance, with divine retribution. He will come to save you. Then will the eyes of the blind be opened and the ears of the deaf unstopped. Then will the lame leap for it, sorry. Then will the lame leap like a deer and the mute tongue shout for joy. Water will gush forth in the wilderness and streams in the desert. The burning sand will become a pool, the thirsty ground bubbling springs. In the haunts where jackals once lay, grass and reeds and papyrus will grow, and a highway will be there. It will be called the way of holiness. The unclean will not journey on it. It will be for those who walk in that way. Wicked fools will not go about on it. No lion will be there, nor will any ferocious beast get up on it. They will not be found there, but only the redeemed will walk there. And the ransomed of the Lord will return. They will enter Zion with singing. Everlasting joy will crown their heads. Gladness and joy will overtake them. And sorrow and sighing will flee away. Now turn over to Matthew. Matthew chapter 11, page 976. Jesus and John the Baptist, chapter 11. After Jesus had finished instructing his 12 disciples, he went on from there to teach and preach in the towns of Galilee. When John heard in prison, what Christ was doing, he sent his disciples to ask him, uh, are you the one who was to come or should we expect someone else? Jesus replied, go back and report to John what you will hear and see. The blind receive sight, the lame walk, those who have leprosy are cured, the deaf hear, the dead are raised and the good news is preached to the poor. Blessed is the man who does not fall away on account of me. Well, let's remain standing. I'll pray for us now. Our loving and gracious Heavenly Father, we've been singing of your reigning in all the earth, uh, but a number of us, maybe many of us, maybe even all of us here, uh, look around the world and perhaps wonder whether that's true from time to time as we see uh, some of the things going on. And so we would ask you, uh, please, to give us conviction and belief that you are the one who reigns, uh, that you are in control of all things, 
and that you have the future very firmly in your hands. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Please do sit down. Uh, well, let me add my own welcome to that of uh, Peter's uh, earlier in the service. Um, if you are here uh, for the first time or for the first time for a while, you won't know that we're going through Isaiah. Well, you will know because Peter mentioned it, but we're going through the book of Isaiah. And uh, we've landed in chapters 34 and 35 uh, this morning. Uh, I uh, only wanted one chapter read just because I thought it'd be a very long reading otherwise, but we are looking at 34 and 35. Page 718 is the page number. I think you'll find it useful if you have your Bibles um, open uh, in front of you. It is a a very um, immature and a childish thing to live only for the moment. Uh, Children can't wait for anything. They want everything now. Uh, What a delight it is then when our children learn to save up for things or or choose to do their homework or revise rather than watch the television because it will benefit them in the long run. When they start to do things like that, it's a sign of the maturing. We're, We're pleased. So how telling it is that we live in a culture that wants everything now. It seems we can't wait for anything in so many ways, Uh, not least of all in terms of stuff, buying stuff, uh, which is why we've had a credit crisis. Uh, We are, as a nation, up to our necks in debt. Uh, Years ago, uh, my parents' generation saved up for things. They waited until they could afford to buy something, until they actually went out and bought it, usually stuffing money in a little tin that was sort of uh, stuffed away in the kitchen or somewhere. Now we want everything now. Everything's instant, from instant credit to instant custard, isn't it? Well, now, unless we grow up, if I can put it that way, unless we mature, we will never make good decisions in life. And we see that very clearly in our Bible passage today. The people of Judah had very good reason to want instant comfort. They, as you will know if you've been here over these weeks, they feared for their lives as they wanted to find an instant answer, an instant immediate rescue. The mighty Assyrian army was camped on their doorstep. And although that the Lord promised that he would deliver them, they couldn't wait. And so they travelled down to Egypt to elicit the support of the Egyptians to stand with them and against the Assyrians. And in doing that, the Lord said to them, woe to you. Woe to you for thinking you're going to find your security in the Egyptians and not stand with with me. Six times we've seen that phrase, woe. And we've seen that that basically meant your actions are the death of you. So over the past six weeks, we've looked at the six woes of chapters 28 to 33. Now the woes are followed by a summary uh, to end the section in chapters 34 and 35. So all the way through this section, we've seen the Lord telling his people that nothing else other than the Lord himself can give them the protection that they need. For them, it was the mighty Assyrians who were camped on their borders and about to invade them. And that meant they faced death and destruction. For some Christians today, like those in Iraq, they have a very similar threat as ISIS causes havoc in the region. Death and destruction is a very real daily danger for many Christians all over the world. For us, it's more subtle. We don't have a real and present danger about to strike us, but we fear death. It's always there on the horizon, as we considered last week. Nothing we can turn to can deal with that great enemy. So as we've seen over these last weeks, the Lord says, don't put your trust in anything else for your security. Don't think the money in the bank or wise investments or real estate or medical insurance or a good pension plan is going to save you when death comes. That's been the thrust of these chapters these last weeks. 
But now, as we come to chapters 34 and 35 and the summary of this section, through Isaiah, the Lord adds a slightly different dimension. And he says, have the long term in view. Invest for the future. Chapters 34 and 35 are not difficult to understand. Alan Harmon, uh, one of the Bible commentators that I've been reading for this series, puts it succinctly. He says, chapters 34 and 35 provide both the ultimate warning and the ultimate promise of divine blessing and restoration. The contrast between chapters 34 and 35 is very striking. Chapter 34 describes a place that appears to be flourishing now, but then becoming a desert, a wasteland. That's the future for those who, don't, who trust the nations rather than the Lord. By contrast, in chapter 35, we see what looks to be a desert now becoming a flourishing garden that will last forever. And that is the destiny for all those who trust the Lord. Very simply, as we look for security, these chapters say, have an eternal perspective. Well, first, let's look at chapter four, the ultimate warning. And it is a warning that's given to all nations. Do you see that 34 verse one? Come near you nations and listen. Pay attention, you peoples. Listen, the the earth here and all that is in it, the world and all that comes out of it. The Lord wants everyone to hear what he's about to say. People all around the world need to know, verse two, the Lord is angry with all nations. His wrath is upon all their armies. He will totally destroy them. He will give them over to slaughter. Their slain will be thrown out. Their dead bodies will send up a stench. The mountains will be soaked with their blood. It is a warning of total destruction. Verse three is a sober description of a massacre. You see what it's describing there? Dead bodies piled high, leaving a stench in the air. The mountains soaked with blood. Now look, when we read verses like that, it should should cause us some difficulty. And verse three will certainly cause us difficulty when we see that it comes about because verse two, the Lord is angry. How does that make you think? I think of a conversation I had recently. The person I was talking to is honestly trying to grapple with the message of Christianity. And as he read, not this passage, but um, of the Lord Jesus warning of eternal judgment, he said, but God is love and I can't believe that God won't let everyone into heaven. Oh, well, we we talked about that issue for a a good wee while. And after we'd been sort of uh, going around and around it for a while, I asked him what he thought was the antithesis of love. You see, most people think that anger or hatred is the antithesis of love. But when it comes to evil, the antithesis of love is, is indifference. If I am indifferent toward evil, I demonstrate that I don't care and I don't love. So in the New Testament, we read these words about Jesus. You have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Jesus hates wickedness because he is loving. Now, I reckon we know this instinctively, whether we've ever really put it like this. We know it instinctively, whether on a personal issue or on the international stage. So if something terrible were to happen to one of my children this week, I can hardly bear to think about it. But if if someone abducted one of my children and then that monster did the sort of thing that we read about in the newspapers and then ended their life, should you turn up to church next week and say to me, I'm sorry to hear your news? And I replied, oh, well, these things happen. At that point, you'd be right to question my love for my children. 
Oh, well, these things happen is no way to react to evil. Love hates evil. And we know that on a personal level. We know it on the international stage too. The advancement of the, the, the extremist Islamist group ISIS and the, the dreadful things they are doing should provoke a reaction in us as we watch the news. If we are indifferent to that kind of evil in the world, we are not loving. We might not be able to do anything about it, but it sh- we should feel ourselves hating wickedness. It should be rising up inside of us, shouldn't it? Well, look, here is the good news of the Bible. God is angry when it comes to evil. And his anger is not like ours. He doesn't just fly off the handle. His anger is his settled, controlled, personal hostility to evil and wickedness. Now, over these last weeks, as we've been looking at Isaiah, we've seen again and again just how kind and gracious and loving the Lord is. And here we see that love worked out when it comes to evil. He can't turn a blind eye to evil and wickedness. And again, we know this instinctively. Over the years, I've had many, many conversations with people who've got very passionate when talking to me when they thought that God might have ignored evil. And it's usually expressed in a statement that begins with the words, I can't believe in a God of love who allows, and then they uh, uh, cite the, the latest atrocity or tragedy that is in the news. Instinctively, we know a loving God should act against wickedness. So verses two and three are not easy, but that's what's going on in those verses. The God who hates evil is acting against evil because he is loving. And because he is so gracious, he's warning the nations of, the, of his anger towards them. He doesn't want to be angry towards them. He doesn't want to judge them. So he's warning them to turn from their evil ways and to turn back to him. He's actually warning them of a final day of judgment, verse 4. All stars of the heavens will be dissolved and the sky rolled up like a scroll. All the starry hosts will fall like withered leaves from the vine, like shriveled figs from the fig tree. It's a description, you see, of the end of the cosmos, of the, of the sky being rolled up, of the, the heavens being dissolved. It is the day when Jesus Christ will return in all his power and glory to wrap up history as we know it. And on that day, the Lord says, verse 5, my sword has drunk its fill in the heavens. See, it descends in judgment on Edom, the people I've totally destroyed. The sword of the Lord is bathed in blood. It is covered with fat, the blood of lambs and goats, fat from the kidneys of rams. For the Lord has a sacrifice in Bosra and a great slaughter in Edom. And the wild oxen will fall with them and the bull calves and the great bulls. Their land will be drenched with blood and the dust will be soaked with fat. Now that kind of language is a bit unusual to us. The destruction of the nations here is couched in sacrificial terms. That's the point of all this language of bulls and goats and and of fat. And it's put that way because the sacrificial system was a means of dealing with the wrath of God. You see, any, um, any thoughtful Jew who was first reading this would have known what this meant. You see, sin is so bad that the just punishment for sin is death. Someone must die for sin. A life must be given. And so the Lord, in his grace, provided the sacrificial, sin, the sacrificial system by which sin could be dealt with. So you take a lamb or a goat or a ram or a bull to die in the place of the sinner. But if there was no sacrifice, no substitute sacrifice offered, 
then the wrath of God would fall upon the sinner. And so here, using that kind of imagery, that kind of language, the Lord looks ahead to the final day of reckoning and he sees the nations who've not turned to the Lord and to his substitute sacrifice and they are treated as the sacrifice and they die for their sin. So in verses five to seven, the nations are experiencing the wrath of God. Again, God's settled, controlled, personal hostility to evil. And then in verses 8 to 15, we are given a vivid description of the result of that judgment. Now, I won't read it now, but you can read it when you get home. And it is a very vivid description. It describes a desert where wild animals live and where no earthly kingdom remains. It is a picture of total destruction. John Oswald writes, in the most forceful language he can muster, Isaiah pictures the future, not only of the land of Eden, but also the whole world which believes it can find fulfillment apart from God. The land is reduced to a volcanic wasteland. And the reason for this description is there at the end of verse eight. Do you see it? The Lord acts in this way to uphold Zion's cause. Zion is the city of God, the future city at the heart of the new creation. But Zion and this new wonderful creation could never become the beautiful, peaceful city that God is going to make it were he not to deal with all sin and rebellion against him. Should evil and rebellion remain in, uh, beyond, the, beyond, as it were, judgment day, uh, he could never make this perfect new creation. If God doesn't deal with evil on that final day, it will only be a matter of time before any new creation he makes will be spoilt again by evil. So he must completely destroy all evil to, end of verse 8, uphold Zion's cause. Therefore, on the final day, all attempts to usurp God's authority, every coup d'etat against the living God will be quashed and crushed. Every rebellious kingdom turned into a desert. That's what you see in verses 18 to 15. And then at the end of the chapter, in verses 16 and 17, he simply says, you can be sure it's going to happen. Verse 16, look in the scroll of the Lord and read. It's already been written down. Verse 16, it it is God's mouth that has given this order and nothing that he says fails to come to pass. And uh, also in verse 16, God's spirit will make this happen. Uh, So chapter 34 is a warning to the nations. But of course, it's also a warning to Judah not to put their trust in the nations. For if we are allied with something that will be destroyed, then we will be caught up in that destruction. So over these last weeks, we've heard again and again why we shouldn't turn to anything else other than the Lord for security and peace and rest in this troubled world. For nothing else can give us the security that we so need and crave. But here is the ultimate reason why we shouldn't trust in anything else. Because anything else that sets itself up in the place of God will be destroyed And if we're trusting that something else, then when it is destroyed, we too will be destroyed. And we need to see this so that we don't look for instant gratification. We need to grow up and have the long term in view. All that said, Barry Webb helpfully writes this. Now it's time to move on, however, for judgment may be necessary and right, but it's not what God delights in or the goal he works towards. I think that's very helpful as we come to the end of chapter 34 to quickly rush to chapter 35. Yes, God will judge chapter 34, but not because he is a capricious God, not because he's out to get people. 
He judges because he's a just God and a loving God and he cannot turn a blind eye to evil. He judges because he must get rid of all evil if we're going to have a glorious new heavenly creation. But he doesn't delight in judgment. He delights in salvation. That's really what he's about. And so we quickly, rightly move on to chapter 35. And secondly, we see the ultimate promise of divine blessing and restoration. Now, verses 1 and 2 are in stark contrast to chapter 34. In chapter 34, the nations that appear to be flourishing will be made into a desert. By contrast, here in chapter 35, the desert and the parched land of Judah will be turned into a blooming garden where the glory of the Lord will be seen. Look at verse 1. The desert and the parched land will be glad. The wilderness will rejoice and blossom. Like the crocus, it will burst into bloom. It will rejoice greatly and shout for joy. The glory of Lebanon will be given to it. The splendor of Carmel and Sharon. They will see the glory of the Lord, the splendor of our God. Again, one writer writes this. Lebanon with its spreading cedars and Mount Carmel with the rich plain of Sharon at its foot were the symbols of abundance. For for us today, it might be, I don't know where you've been on holiday, the sun-drenched beaches and luscious vegetation of Hawaii or the unspoilt landscape of the Canadian Rockies. Well, whatever it is. Verse 2 describes a place of not just outstanding natural beauty, but a place that is flourishing. That's the future that awaits God's faithful people in the new creation. And it's a wonderful future in the presence of our splendid and glorious God. Do you see it there? And knowing this, this future should give us strength in the immediate struggles of life. Verse 3, strengthen the feeble hands, steady the knees that give way. See, Judah felt weak and their knees were knocking because the Assyrians were on their doorstep. We too feel vulnerable in this scary world. As I've already said, the church of Jesus Christ all over the world certainly feels weak with so many enemies at, at, at her door. In some parts of the world, Christians face real physical enemies that are out to crush the church. Uh, We face different but real pressures on us here in the West. Whether it be the rising tide of secularism or the pull of materialism or the pressure of relativism and it will leave us feeling feeble and weak need. And so with this promise of a future flourishing garden city in the presence of God, The Lord tells Isaiah, verse four, say to those with fearful hearts, be strong, do not fear, your God will come. He will come with vengeance, with divine retribution. He will come to save you. See, here is exactly why we have to believe chapter 34 if we want to believe in a glorious future of chapter 35. We have to believe that when God comes, he will come in divine retribution if we want to believe in salvation. Without divine retribution, without God crushing evil, there will be no final and ultimate salvation. So when our hearts are fearful, we need to say to one another, verse four, our God will come. I want to say, I need you to keep telling me that. Let me be autobiographical here for a moment, if I may. Uh, in the first service, when Tamar uh, was doing the, the all-in slot, and she said, what are you tempted by? What, what are your temptations? I, I was sitting over there next to my son, Joshua. And Joshua told me the things he was tempted by, and then I told him. And I said to him, one of my temptations, Joshua, is that I want everything to be perfect now. 
So you see, I I, I, I want a trouble-free life now. Desperately, I'm looking for that all the time, which is why so often my day is ruined. Because I get up thinking it's going to be a great new day, everything's going to work out well, and it never does. Conversations that I have don't go well. I don't get the work done that I wanted to get done. Other people get in my way. I'm probably getting theirs, but I never see it that way round, do I? So things don't flourish. Things don't go the way I wanted to go. And I'm disappointed. Why? Because I've got the wrong expectations. Now, when, when disappointments come, uh, when we are hurt, uh, it's because we want a trouble-free life now. I don't want to wait for this life. And so I, I then turn to all sorts of things to give me that perfect life now. But that's not going to happen in this fallen world. So I find myself disappointed either today or through this week or through this life. Now to stop that disappointment, I need to grow up. I need to be more mature. I need to have a long-term view and not want everything now. I need to look to that day when God comes. And I need you to keep encouraging me to do that. And so when I'm all down in the mouth and fed up because I've had a bad day, I need you to say to me, verse four, uh, your God will come. Or maybe you just need to say this to me, Paul, grow up, be mature. And you'll enjoy saying that, won't you? I need you to say that to me. And see what Isaiah promised would happen when our God does come. He says, verse five, then will the eyes of the blind be opened and the ears of the deaf unstopped. Then will the lame leap like a deer and the mute tongue shout for joy. Now, of course, that is exactly what did happen when God came, isn't it? That's why we had um, uh, Matthew chapter 11 read. It's exactly what happened. When Jesus walked this earth, he did open blind eyes and make the deaf hear and make the lame walk, and enable the mute to speak and shout for joy. Jesus did that, demonstrating that he is none other than the God of verse four, you see? Your God will come, and when he comes, he will do these things. So it's a great uh, demonstration that Jesus really is God. But of course, what, God, what, what Jesus didn't do when he came was the, 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 the second half of verse four. He didn't bring vengeance and divine retribution. And that is exactly why we had Matthew 11 read out. Because John the Baptist knew this part of the Bible. And he was saying, well, God has come. I, I'm pretty sure Jesus is, is the, the Christ we've been waiting for. But all this hasn't happened yet. So while I've got God walking on the earth, showing me that he is God by making the lame walk and, and, and making the mute uh, speak and making the deaf hear and all those things, he didn't do the second half of verse four. He didn't bring divine vengeance. Why is that? Well, because he didn't just come to say, here am I, and he didn't come at that point to bring divine vengeance. He came to die on the cross. He came to be the substitute sacrifice. He came to take the vengeance of the Lord upon himself. He came to take the punishment for our sin so that we don't have to. So that when he then does come on that final day to finally do all of that and wrap up history as we know it, we know that if we trusted in him, he's the substitute and so we don't have to take the vengeance of God because he's taken it upon himself. Isn't that wonderful? God comes and says, I'll take the punishment so that you don't have to. How kind of God. He came to save us. And that's why when he does come again, if we're trusting in him, his people will not face the prospect of chapter 34 of an eternal desert because he's taken the desert. 
Rather, we can look forward to being in, in his presence and in the flourishing garden of chapter 35. We can look forward to a future when the hard times that so ruin life now will, go, will be gone forever. A day when we will experience verse six. Water will gush, gush forth in the wilderness, streams in the desert. The burning sand will become a pool, the thirsty ground bubbling springs. In the haunts where jackals once lay, you see in the desert, Grass and reeds and papyrus will grow. And a highway will be there. It will be called the way of holiness. The unclean will not journey on it. It will be for those who walk in that way. Wicked fools will not go about on it. No lion will be there. There will be nothing to to fear anymore. Nothing's going to get you. Nor will any ferocious beast get up on it. They will not be found there. But only the redeemed will walk there. And the ransomed of the Lord will return. They will enter Zion with singing everlasting joy will crown their heads gladness and joy will overtake them and sorrow and sighing will flee away does it sound wonderful Christian can you, can you see yourself in verse 10 entering Zion the eternal new Jerusalem singing with such joy and happiness in your heart sorrow and sighing all gone forever no more worries as you enter that new Jerusalem feeling secure and peaceful Never again to wake up in the morning and think, I'm going to have a great day today and it all going horribly wrong. But waking up every morning and it being fantastic. No more disappointments. That's the vision we must have clear in our minds. Through this life, when we are tempted to trust in something else other than the Lord. We must have an eternal perspective, knowing that trusting the Lord will lead to a garden city, a place of flourishing and everlasting joy in the presence of our God. We've got to have that, otherwise we'll keep turning to other things to give it it now. Because we're so childish, because we want everything now. We can't wait for the future. And if we want everything now, we'll do what they did. We'll run to Egypt to look for security. And we'll not stand firm in the Lord. Chapters 34 and 35 are here to make us mature, to, to grow up, to become godly disciples of Jesus Christ. So as we go through this life, hard as it is, we keep making decisions based on the long-term view. And that's the way we'll make good and right decisions and remain steadfast and firm in the Lord. Let's pray together. Now, Father, we thank you that we've uh, been able to sing and now see in your word that you do reign and that in your great kindness you will uh, quash and crush all evil, that you do have for your people a wonderful and glorious new heavenly creation. We look forward to that day when uh, we can march into Zion singing with everlasting joy in our hearts with sorrow and sighing, all fleeing away. We pray that you'd help us to have that thought in our minds today and in the days ahead and right through the rest of our lives that help us to make good decisions now, that we'd be able to encourage each other by saying, our God will come, that that would strengthen our feeble hands and steady our knees as they knock in fear. Our Father, would you please strengthen our fearful hearts now, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.